Hello, and welcome to the Architectette podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Brady. Architectette is a podcast that illuminates the lesser heard stories of women plus in architecture and related fields. On today's podcast, we welcome guest Tennille Bettenhausen. Tennille is a client success manager at Microdesk where she leverages her 20 plus years of experience in AEC industries, where she worked in technical, business development and construction specialties. She is author of the book, Maybe I'll Be an Architect, as well as the host of the podcast, Death by Architecture. On today's podcast, we talk about how Tennille developed resilience through her job hunt after college, landing an unfulfilling job, as well as going through layoffs, how unexpectedly winning the Miss Long Beach pageant helped her re-enter the architecture industry, how she worked on spaces in a hospital and later had a baby in one of her maternity ward projects, the challenges of re-entering the profession after focusing on motherhood and how she leveraged her soft skills as a business developer, her current role at Microdesk and how she, with a background in architecture, advocates for users, and finally, her perspective on diversity in AEC industries and how she's trying to help through her efforts in her passion projects, her book, as well as her podcast. As a reminder, all links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review so that more people can discover the podcast and also share this with your friends. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Tanil, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. We have a lot to talk about today, and I know you have an amazing career journey. You're working on a lot of very cool projects right now, but I'd love to start with you coming into architecture. How did you find out about the profession? How I found architecture is my mom had a really close friend that she worked with, and he was a civil engineer. And so they dated, and we'll just put that out there. They dated for a really long time, and he was a civil engineer, and he would take me to work with him. And so he would always be on AutoCAD and drawing drawings. And I was like, this is really cool. But he worked in the oil industry. So it was like super dirty. He was always on oil rigs. And I'm like, this is gross. But I really was intrigued by the drawing side. And so I was in high school and I was like, I'm, I'm going to do that, but I don't want to do engineering. I don't, I'm not sure what I want to do. And so that path led me to seek out architecture school. And from that moment on, I was I was in love with the process of hearing people solve problems. I, I didn't think at the time that that was what it, it really truly at the heart of it was, but I thought it was about pretty buildings and pretty projects and big high rises, <laughs> but it really is solving problems for people, having a, a solution. Uh, and, and that's that's what I fell in love with. Mm -hmm. And did you find that out that it was that architecture was more about problem solving in school or is that once you got into the industry? In school, it was romanticized. I, I really did think that it was going to be these big, awesome, really cool projects. And I was going to like be the superstar, wear my black spectacles, even though I obviously have on black glasses <laughs> and my, my you know, turtleneck. And I was going to be like, this is great. And um, I got out of school and I'm doing bathroom details. And there was nothing glamorous about that at all. And so I think I learned it later. I don't think that we talk enough about that in school. Like there is a real heart beating person behind every single project and they're not always that great and they're not always that fun and they don't understand what we do. And I, I think that that's truly missed. Really, the human element is really missed in our schooling. Mm -hmm. Because in school, you get a, a paper talking about the project and who the client is. 
but then it's really your decisions from there on out. Yeah, you get to do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, and there's no code, and sometimes there's not gravity or structure or MEP systems. And then when you work in the profession, it's kind of a, a harsh reality. When you left architecture school, how did you look for jobs and where did you end up finding your first job? This should have been my first tip that this is going to be a crazy wild ride. So <laughs> yeah, please keep your arms and legs inside of the podcast and buckle up. <laughs> buckle up because it starts out crazy. So <laughs> I finish and I'm like, this is great. I'm, I'm going to find a job. I was living in Arizona. I went to Arizona State University. Did you do bachelor's or master's? Bachelor's of architecture and... I was ready to go. I'm like, I'm, I'm doing this thing. And I sent out what felt like probably hundreds. It, it might have not have been. I don't know. I don't know now. It was a lot to, to my like 22-year-old brain. I was like, I'm sending out all the resumes and got zero responses. And I'm like, wow, like that seems really like harsh. Like what is going on? So I had this guy call me. He owned this small like mom and pop shop firm. I was like, super excited like talking to him and he's like yeah I, I don't want to hire you I was like oh oh okay he's like let me give you some advice so my program at the time uh, in the early 2000 late 90s early 2000s we didn't use technology we didn't use Revit obviously Revit wasn't even a thing then but we didn't use AutoCAD we used some like that ArchiCAD like some some modeling and drafting, but not a whole lot. Everything was pretty much still like hand-drawn. It was very like uh, more on the artsy side of things. And he's like, you're not worth anything. Like if you don't know AutoCAD and you don't know the technology, I can't hire you. You're worth like a dollar hour to me. And so I was like, gosh, that's harsh. So he's like, I have a friend who works for like a trade school, very similar to DeVry. And they'll teach you in like two or three months and you'll be Autodesk certified and you'll be ready to go. And I was like, I don't want to go back to school. Like I'm, I'm done. Fast forward. I went and I learned AutoCAD. I was Autodesk certified, surprisingly enough, which is really funny what, what I do today, but that's how it started. I learned the program and I still didn't get a job in Arizona. I wound up floating my resume to a couple places here in Southern California and was hired. My first job out of school was working for Guess Jeans, the you know jean brand, doing their store design. So I was using technology at that point to do the job. And so that was my first entry in, but it, it, it was not glamorous at all. It was not romantic at all. I was like, I just need a job. Somebody hire me, please. So that's how I entered. And I wound up back here in Southern California. Was the program certified at that time? Yeah, it was just more art, like the design side. And so, I mean, you have to think too, that was, I was in school. I'm very old. I was in school in the 90s. I remember working for a project manager who would draw on the back of a napkin, like club or the bar, wherever he was at, and give it to us to put it into AutoCAD. So that was very much so still in the hand drafting days, especially at that time, like AutoCAD was just becoming a thing. And it's like, oh, I'm not using AutoCAD. We're going to do it by hand. So it was still very industry standard to do everything by hand. So I didn't even think anything of it, but it was very much so more on the art side of it, which I did love. You don't get to do enough of that, obviously, when you're out of school and working and drafting and doing those door detail schedules and bathroom details. But um, 
But, you know, you're not doing that. So you get to do that in school. It's neat. Yeah. I guess you have the rest of your life to worry about code and all of that. But learning that critical thinking and that problem solving is something that is very important because you carry that with you forever. So you worked at Guest to start out. And then looking at your resume now, I have I have a cheat sheet on my computer. You were a project associate. You were a site and equipment planner, a project designer, a project engineer. And then you transitioned into business development. Can you talk a little bit about everything before business development and kind of the decisions that led you to each change and just what that was like to make those small or big pivots at the time? Right. So I was a store designer for guests. And just what you think right now of how working in retail is in the store, it's like that in corporate. It was not, not it wasn't good. I didn't really love it. It was really challenging and it, it was very toxic, let's just say. And so I didn't, I didn't love it, but I also knew that I wasn't at the time getting any mentorship hours or if I were ever to get licensed, I was getting none of those credits working, I guess. It was just a really fun, like, you know, young person, like free clothes, that type of stuff. But it was, I wasn't getting any, wasn't learning anything. So that was my original career pivot into working in a firm was to work for somebody that was licensed to understand, is this something that I really want to do? Because that was really the first time that I was able to actually work in the field or in the profession, I should say. So I did work as an associate. I came in and worked a couple years as an associate. Then we had a recession. And so I was laid off and I thought, this is, it's just not for me. Like maybe architect, this is where I could have pivoted the first time. I just too stubborn. To do it. Um, I was like, maybe it's not for me. Uh, you know, I got laid off. Being laid off is, it's hard. And, and I know a lot of big tech companies are laying off people today and you're hearing like the stories of how hard it is. And it, it's something that you just can't for a very type A person not being able to control that was was really hard for me. Do you have a word of advice for people? Because that is a very of the moment topic. I've been seeing it on LinkedIn too. Like, oh, I woke up and I'm on maternity leave and I got my, my email is shut down and this, that, and the other. Yep. Do you have any advice for someone who's going through that right now, especially in the field of architecture, how they can cope? <laughs> the advice that I was told was to go outside and like get fresh air and to recognize that it's not your fault. Sometimes those things... They just happen and to take the time to grieve that happening to you, whatever, however long you need it to be in it, like wallow in it and it's okay. But then now it's time to to get back on and, and figure out what to do. And I, I did go through that. I was laid off and I was, I was still in the wallowing phase of the layoff. A very important phase. <laughs> it really is. I was sitting on the couch and I was sending out my resume. And again, nobody's calling me back. And I was like, I need something on my resume that like makes me stand out. And my, my roommate turned on the TV and he left it on public access television. I don't even know if they have that still, but it was like, you know, where you're like, the library is open from this time to this time. And, you know, the cable, local cable channel, you know, show is going to come on. I was like, what? I didn't feel like getting up because wallow stage. Right. So I was like, I'm just going to leave it there. And a slide came up on this TV that was like, are you looking for interview help, public speaking training, all of this for free. And I was like, yes, because that would really help me 
And so I call the number and it's like, you've reached the Miss Long Beach pageant. And I was like, click, <laughs> nope, not, not doing that. Never been the homecoming queen, never been the pageant girl. I'm like 24 at this time. I was like, absolutely not. And uh, I'm not in the right, I've, I've got like Ben and Jerry's ice cream and like a bowl of popcorn, wallow stage. But then the screen comes back again and I see the number again. I was like, you know what? All right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call. And the lady answered this time. And so before I went to the voicemail, the, yeah. she answered. And I was like, oh no. She's like, you know, you should come. I told her, like, I have a degree. I'm trying to get a job. Mm-hmm. She's like, this would be great, maybe great for your resume. And you get to learn something, you know, we'll we'll teach you about public speaking and there's networking opportunities, and you should do just try it. And I was like, all right, well, I'll get the free training. Mm-hmm. And I wound up doing the pageant and I, I wound up winning. So oh I was Miss Long Beach. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> totally random, Congrats. right? <laughs> In 2002, I was Miss Long Beach. And, and so I was able to, funny enough, get a job from that because I met a project architect at some event that I went to. And so it really did get my career back on track, but it was such a weird detour. My whole career has been these random detours. But I wound up being the first African-American title holder in Long Beach. I had no idea I was actually even going to win this thing. Like I said, I that was the first, if I'm looking back at that, that was the first time using that soft skill of like networking and public speaking. And funny enough, all those things, like you were saying, you're looking at my resume. I, I do look at, there were a lot of career pivots along the way, not necessarily like huge pivots, still in the AEC, industry or in that umbrella, but definitely ones to build my toolkit up to get me to where I am today, which without all of those things, I probably wouldn't be doing what I do today, what I love. But yeah. So anyway, Miss Long Beach, that was a total tangent. Yeah, that's incredible. So for anyone listening, if you're feeling lost in your career, join a pageant. So then you ended up back in, Mm -hmm. did you join an architecture firm Mm -hmm. after the pageant? Yes. How did you pivot to engineer at a hospital? So I was working at an architecture firm, really wanting to get out. I wanted to see the construction side. Like anytime they're like, anybody want to go to the field? I was like, me. And so I just felt like architecture is very much so, or construction is very much so like sheet music to a musician, right? We we can see it and I'm sure a good musician can play music without hearing it. But if you're hearing it, it just, it feeds the soul in a different way, right? And so I feel like construction is very much so like that. We can see door details and window details and roof framing all day long until you're seeing it in the field. It's not the same. You got to see what you're drawing. And so that was the pivot was from architecture firm to working for a local hospital because they offered me an opportunity to see construction hands-on. And so I was I was running projects with project managers on the construction side. And so that was really neat because prior to switching to healthcare, I was doing retail. So, and don't get me wrong, Starbucks is awesome and everybody needs it. Everybody needs their coffee fix. But working in healthcare really gave me a sense of purpose that I didn't have when I was doing retail shopping centers. Like you're really, everyone, whether I mean, good, bad, or indifferent, where you're having a baby or your parents are sick or you're sick yourself, you're really helping the community in a way that is untangible in any other 
design and construction arena. And so I got to work on a women's tower where I then had my babies at. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It finished right before. Full circle. <laughs> yeah. I know. You were like punch listing from the bed. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's crooked. <laughs> no lie. I was in the I was in the room and I was like, okay, that's that was not supposed to look oh. like that. That's not supposed to look like that. My, my husband's like, okay. Yeah, focus. Yeah. Got to calm down. <laughs> focus. You're having a baby. And so there were some really best work of life moments in that job where you get to, like I said, you get to touch the community in a way that I don't think I ever would have done that if I had a stayed in the firm side. That's excellent. And so I believe I read that you left the field for a bit when you became a mom. Was that before or after you transitioned to business development? Oh, I hadn't. Business development wasn't even a thought in my mind at that point. <laughs> I still was on the design and construction side of, of things. I had my daughters. So I was working at, at Hogue Hospital and finished my project. I had a baby in that project and I wound up coming back after about six months. And so they had a child care center on the property, which I was like, this is awesome. Like, I mean, the best case scenario, you've got a child care center and there's doctors and nurses here. Like, and she's right here. Like, it's great. In your experience, did that make it any easier? I know probably it's like, oh, it'll be so convenient. I can just bring her. Or was it still very difficult to balance work and childcare and then dropping off and knowing that she's just downstairs, but like I have to be upstairs? It was a, a a mix of both because I, I want to say I had the empathy of the mom that has to drop her kids off and, and go into the office because I still had to do that. But I knew I could walk there and see her, but it was still hard to juggle everything. I think that there was a lot of, you know, we're going to talk probably a little later about imposter syndrome, but I think that that spans across not just your career, right? Like I was having that, like, I'm a bad mom, I'm a bad daughter, bad wife, because all the plates were spinning, but they were wobbly. So nothing was 100%. And so there was no balance at that point. So I did make that decision at the time to stay at home with both of my daughters full time for five years. Like I said, they were at the daycare center and it was awesome. And I love them. Actually, some of them I still am friends with on like social media and they were a big part of our lives and they loved her almost as probably as much as I did, but they were seeing those moments, like the first step and they were excited about it because that's, I mean, you know, they're like, it was so great. She did this thing today. And I was like, I wasn't getting to see it. And so I was missing those key moments while I was installing, you know, projects on, on the hospital campus or, you know, walking punch lists or and, and doing all those things. And so I thought this is a time for me to be a mom. And so I, I just solely concentrated on that for five years. And do you feel at that time that when you joined back into the profession, were you able to just pick up where you left off? Or did you feel like you got set back or had to work harder when you got back to prove that I'm committed to work now and the 40 hours and this and that? Yeah, I really feel like we don't talk a whole lot about the re-entry. The profession does a really bad job of that. It's like, oh, it's fine. I took five years off. I didn't feel like it was that long, but that's a hole on your resume that's pretty steep. And it wasn't until I just had to put that out there that I'm hireable. I just was at home with my kids. Like I almost felt like it was dirty, like shameful that I was at home. And so I finally had to lead with that. And I started to get more traction on my, on my job search, but I also was told that I was rusty 
that funny enough, given the fact that what I do today, that the technology had passed me. And so I was not up to speed on Revit. Those five years were the pivotal transition from AutoCAD to Revit. And I kind of missed that timing. And so I was told over and over, you're just, you don't know the technology. It's passed you by. They're like, have you heard of Autodesk certification? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I kind of already been here. So like what? And then today, haha, this is what I do for a living. But I just didn't know where I fit anymore in the profession. I was like, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I need to do something else. And so I called, at the time it was called IDP, Incarb calls it something else. (laughs) And so I called my IDP mentor and I was like, what do I do? Like, do I come back? Because I actually did work for him. He was the principal at my firm that I was working at previously before the hospital. And uh, I was like, I just don't know that I really want to do that. And he said, you know, have you ever thought about doing business development? And I was like, no, like I literally worked for you. Like, where have you been? Like, oh, okay. I was like, I've never done that. And he's like, I think you would be good at it. You know, you are personable. You love talking to people. You're almost like a unicorn because technical people are traditionally not super outgoing people. And so, and and you know what it takes to put together a high performing team. So you can talk layman's terms to the client, but you know how to put together a good project. So you understand their pain point. I said, okay, well, I'll give it a try. And he got me my first job in business development. That's how it started. And in your project experience before that, were you ever client facing or this was your first time being in front I'm of the I'm now client? thinking back, I was actually doing a little bit more of the client before I became the client, right, on the on the healthcare side. Prior to that, working in the firm, I was just starting to do a little bit of that. I was going to more client meetings. And so I was starting to do that a little bit more as my career and in the firm kind of was ending. But, you know, I was billable, which does make it a challenge later. Did make it a challenge later, having the skills to be able to be billable, but being in a role that's not billable later on became a little bit of a problem. But I wasn't technically a business developer at the time. So then when you made that transition, you got hired at a firm as specifically a BD person with no specific BD experience. What was that like? Did you feel imposter syndrome? You mentioned it earlier. Did you feel that? Absolutely. Because, you know, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know. Like, I I felt like I carried a big weight because the firm is looking to their BD people to bring work. And so I'm bringing those projects and I had never done it before. So it was a trial by fire for sure. But I really, I really did find a love for it. And I love talking to people who love good design and construction, who love good architecture. And I think there's a level of peace sometimes when talking to the client that they feel like I'm just very normal. I'm not, even today, like I have zero technology. Like I have, you know, a whole team of people that are, know the ins and outs of the software and they're developers. I don't know that side of it. I'm just a normal person like them. And so I think it brings that relatability to it. And so that first job, I don't know how I got that job. Actually, my mentor said, I was like, I've never done BD before. And and he's like, well, maybe don't say that in your first interview, maybe just say that you're ready to learn. And I'm like, okay. So somehow I was able to get that job. But in that job was the 
rub that I am a billable asset. There were times that I was doing billable work because that's what makes a firm money. And that sucked. So it was really, it was, it, there's such a balance. It almost is easier probably for a BD person that has never done this work to, you know, not ever be looked at like, oh, but she could probably do that, you know, because she's done it before. Mm-hmm. In terms of drafting or detailing? Oh, yeah. All of it. Entitlements, you name it. I was doing all of it. Oh, <laughs> So it's like, wait a minute, um, I'm billable now. What is happening? Yeah, in between your two conferences, do you mind just uh, yep. doing all this code research? Yeah, yeah, do you mind going to the city and talking to the planning commission and then going to the planning commission meeting and talking through that and then, you know, also get work for us? It was a lot. And so I didn't really love that, but I did love talking to people and and using that soft skill. So for someone that might be maybe in architecture school right now, this might be the first time they've ever heard of business development. Can you talk a little bit about when working in an architecture firm or when you did work in an architecture firm as the BD person, what did your day-to-day look like and what kind of tasks were you responsible for outside of those entitlements and planning commission hearings? (laughs) (laughs) Which I shouldn't have been at. So my role was really to drum up work. And so that's building that relationship with the client because one thing we do know, and this is very standard across probably most industries, is that it is better to have a repeat client than getting new ones over and over and over again, right? So you're building the relationship with those clients. And also people don't hire people they don't know. Like there's really that, there's still that soft skill and that relationship part of getting work. And so I was the person in charge of, we worked, we did schools. Um, So go to the school district and meet the people at the school district, go to their meetings, be a part of the community. Because at the end of the day, I used to tell the teams that were interviewing before we'd have a big interview for a project is the client knows that we could do the work. They've seen our portfolio, very well-known firm names that we're up against. They know that we all probably at the same level could do the work. They're now looking for a team that they have, they want to have a long-term relationship. It's almost like dating and they want to know, is it going to be long-term, right? And so they want to know, will you be able to connect with them and also on the school side with the community? That's a huge, huge part of it. And so they're wanting to, to build a relationship with you. And so I think that that's, that's basically what I was doing was helping my team get work, getting them prepared for interviews and building that relationship. If we won that project, staying with the project and staying with the client to make sure that we were delivering what we were supposed to deliver. And then doing that multiple times with multiple clients. It's a ton of work. Just research and relationship management and following projects and tracking potentials and it's exhausting work. It's a hard job, but I think that if your listeners are ever, they're probably thinking about their BD people that they have in their offices and they probably think that it looks super fun because we're like going to really fun trips and going to cocktail parties and dinners and, you know, it looks on the outside very frivolous and fun, but that's how the sausage is made. That's how firms get projects. So so it's worth it. (laughs) It's fun until you go to your first conference and you realize how exhausting it is, where after a full day of events and then an after event, you just come back to your hotel room and you have to prep for the next day, but you just pass out because you're just volume up all day long. 
all day long. You're on on all day long. And I always kind of funny. I talked to my husband about this because he is so the opposite of me. Mm-hmm. He's a very he's introverted, like beyond introverted. He could probably go all day without saying a word oh. <laughs> uh, to, to anyone. And so I sometimes I'm like I'm peopled out and he doesn't he's like, what? Like I was just wrung out. Like I, I cannot talk to another person because it's a lot. You're you're on the go, but you're also doing your your job. There were plenty of times that I was at conferences where we have projects we're submitting proposals to that are back in the office that I'm managing that and also attending meetings. And so there's a lot of juggling. Don't get me wrong, it is a fantastic job. I love what I do when you hit your stride with it, but it's it's demanding. It doesn't look like it though, but, but ask your BD people how what they do. It's it's a lot more than you think. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, they are hard workers. You got into BD because it was a potential better work-life balance, but a lot of those events are after hours yep. or before hours or you're running to meetings or coffee chats. Yep. It's not as flexible. And I think that that was really kind of a challenge of being the BD person in a traditional architecture firm because it is very focused on billable time, right? And so if you're not there from eight to five, are you really doing the work? I find it very interesting what COVID has provided us, which is we'd be remiss to even talk about the fact that now it is much more flexible and people can work from home and still get their work done. But when I was the when I first started my BD path, I was supposed to be there from eight to five and on top of go to events at night. And so it's, it really was a challenge at first, but I figured out how to make that work now. And so now do you mind talking a little bit about your current role and, and how it's different or similar to when you were working for BD in an architecture firm? It is different. I'm still doing similar stuff. So what I do now is I, I, like I said, mentioned at the top, of the podcast that I'm a client success manager. And so for Microdesk, and we are a partner of Autodesk. So we resell Autodesk products. We also have our own IP. And so we have our own software. And then we also sell other products like Bluebeam and Panzera. So I really manage our top accounts. So these are people that are large firms that have um, either services with us. Half of the company is software related, where it is a reseller situation of Revit and AEC Collection, BIM 360 and Build. But then also on the other side is the consultancy. So we will place BIM managers in firms. We'll do, we'll cover projects that um, firms cannot cover if they're having staffing issues. We onboard staff. So we've test um, new employees to make sure their skills are up to par. And then we also provide training. So I am managing around 30 to 40 clients that do all of those things with us to make sure that they are using all of the products or all of our services to its fullest, because we all know that you could use I mean, every day you use a product and it's like, ah, just using it to get by, but are you using it how it's supposed to be used and uh, at its fullest potential? So that's what I do today. And I and I really love it. I'm as a user, a previous user of those softwares, it's kind of nice to be fighting for them on the user side, right? Because my point of contact is very generally the CIO or the IT person. And so they're like, we don't care. <laughs> but I'm fighting for the people that are doing the work. And I have done that. And so just whatever makes their lives easier. So we kind of can meet in the middle. Is it training? Is it 
We do IT support. We do tech cases. And so it's really managing those relationships. I was brought in because years ago, Autodesk is subscription-based, right? So it's every three years, you pay a lot of money, which I recognize. I was like, boo, I know. But you pay a lot of money. And then three years later, you're like, oh, got to read, you know, otherwise we're not going to be able to do our work. Um, And so what was happening is there was nobody in between to manage those relationships. And so they would buy it, spend a lot of money, and two and a half years later, be like, hey, girl, ready to give us more money. And they're like, where have you been? Like, we've, you know, struggled. We've, you know, we had questions, like nobody has been here to help us. And so I am the resource to help to stay with that client along the way, along their journey. And so you said you have 30 to 40 accounts that you manage. Are you getting calls every day? Like, help, I can't do this. Or is are there a couple days a week where maybe you don't hear anything, everything's going well, and then, you know, Friday the 13th, <laughs> just everything hits the wall. How, how often are you contacted by these clients? So I consider myself successful if they're contacting me, so I don't mind, because that means that they understand that I'm a resource for them. You know, it really kind of shows the maturity and the depth of bench of our team that there's people to help help you. I might not be able to answer the question. Absolutely. Sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I can go and find the right resource to help them. Every day we're consumers of something and there's nothing worse than calling customer service and being like, that person did not help me at all, or I don't know who to call. And so I'm really that resource for those accounts to call me. I I might not be able to help you, but I'll try. Like, I want to say maybe it was a month ago or two months ago, Autodesk was having a full-blown, like, wig out, shut down, like nobody could use it. And so I I talked to people a lot that day. (laughs) So just to be there to hold their hand, like, I can't fix it for you. This is not my problem, but I, I I will be with you to help you out. And to, when think, I'm testing it at the same time, I'm logged into my Autodesk at the same time as them. And so, you know, just being a resource to hopefully get back on track so that they could do their work because I understand what that's like. And so I don't talk to them every day. There are some clients that I love that I do talk to. We're on teams together. We send memes to each other. Um, like all day, random stuff all day long. And there's some that I don't talk to that much. And that's okay if they don't want to be my bestie, but I'm there as a resource for them all the time. That's great. We often talk about the architecture firm side of things, and then there's the owner side, but you're on really the selling to the AEC industry side of things. How does the level of diversity in terms of gender representation, is that different than the architecture industry from what you've experienced in a better or a worse way? That's about the same, I think. I mean, because I think we're still traditionally considered AEC. So we're lumped into, even though I would consider us more on the technology side, we're not like traditional like Google and Apple and all that. I think we're still technically lumped into the AEC side. So it's about the same. And I do see some changes. Obviously, I sat on a panel to talk about that at Autodesk University at the end of last year. It's industry standard that we're seeing not enough women, uh, not enough female voices at the table, not enough BIPOC community voices at the table. And so I, I think we know that it's a problem. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, during the George Floyd, you know, civil unrest and and all that was happening at the very beginning, I was on a call 
AIA California brought together, like, I mean, these are some big name star architects. Like I was on this call. I was like, how did I get on this call? Like, oh my God, there's like some big names in here. And it was almost like analysis paralysis. There's so much to be done. Nobody knows what to start. And so I, th- I sat back and I thought, well, what if it's just a little thing? I can't pay for somebody's architecture school and the access to education. And I can't do all these things. But um, maybe just if we all do something small, it's that like throwing a pebble in the water and the ripples out yards and you don't get to see what happens under the water or far out. But if we're all doing it, then that creates the wave. Right. And so I just was like, I have to make it not about what I'm doing holistically. Like I said, I can't single-handedly make it better for women, you know, or Black women in this industry. However, I have to do something. And so I have a voice at the table today and I've got to be able to use it. And so that's what I'm doing. Yes. And one of those metaphorical pebbles of yours, you have a children's book. I do. It came from that research. So Autodesk University asked us to present on diversity, equity, inclusion, and BIM technology. And I thought, wow, that's like really cool. Like, Autodesk wants us to talk about this. And then when we started, we're like, oh my gosh, like some of our practice sessions were like two hours because we just, there's so much, like, what do you, what, what do you bring that's like going to change something, right? The weight of that was, it was really weighty. So I thought, well, what can I do? And and kind of thinking back to my childhood, there was no real role models. Like I said, my mom's boyfriend at the time was an engineer. And so I had that in my household as as a role model, but that's very rare. Like kids don't watch TV today. On TV, there was Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch. He was an architect, but he's also white and male. So I thought, well, what if, what if we got kids dreaming of careers early? And so I thought, well, you know, I've got all this other, I'm a mom, I've got a full-time job. I don't have time for writing a book, but I decided to give it a try. And I was like, my mom is probably going to be the only person to buy it. You know, I'll just sign it for her. Like, oh, you know, yay, thanks, mom. And I'm in a Mothers in Architecture Facebook group and so embarrassed to be like, hey, guys, I wrote this book. And so they're like, oh, my gosh, this is great. Like, I love it. Like, send it to us. And so without that community, architects are just this community AEC is so mighty to support each other. And I just, I don't think that we give it enough credit that we will support, like we'll support whatever creative, like we're creative. So it's like, you have a podcast, great. You wrote a book, awesome. And without that group really cheering me on and supporting me, I don't know that I would have actually like continued on. But so the book is just about dreaming of careers and really simply, probably more or less my my story of like what I could do, but somehow, and even on those pivots, they always, always comes back to me working in the AC industry. Didn't stop. So I wrote the book. It's called Maybe I'll Be an Architect and it's done so well. I was like so surprised that, like I said, this, this industry is so mighty and every day something random happens, you know, where I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, people are reading this. <laughs> Oh my God, it's so crazy. And where can people buy the book? You can buy it on Amazon. And if you're in Chicago, it's actually in the Museum of Architecture. Wow. It just got picked up there, I know. And also if you're in DC, it's in the AIA bookstore. But most people, you know, this little mom and pop shop called Amazon, it is on there. And then uh, also Target, Barnes & Noble. 
So it's all over the place. Okay, well, I'm in DC, so I'll have to pick that up. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll take a picture with it. (laughs) Yes, go into the bookstore. They have it there. It's so funny. (laughs) Kind of a little funny story to writing the book. My kids, they've read it, but they're like, so like roll their eyes like, oh my God, I don't want to hear it again. We've heard it a thousand times. Well, their mom wrote it. So <laughs> yeah, right. they're like, whatever. Um, So I actually was invited to a title one school, which here in Southern California is like basically more than I forget what the percentage is, but a large percentage are living below the poverty line. Right. So they're a title one school um, and they had a meet the author night and a, it was really cool, like a book fair. But, you know, it was, I was there reading it. There was this little boy, probably in kindergarten. And before I start reading it, I asked them, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, I want to be a teacher, a doctor, whatever. And this little boy is like, I want to be a wrestler. And I was like, cool, that's awesome. You're going to be the best wrestler ever. (laughs) Like, that's going to be great. So I read the book. And as I was walking out of the classroom, he ran up to me and he's like, can I tell you something? And I was like, oh, what? What You want to talk to me about wrestling? And (laughs) he's like, he's like, no, I think I want to be an architect. And I thought, all right, this is planting the seed. And this kid probably might not ever be. But if they don't know, you don't know what you don't know, especially in a Title I school, to be able to hear a story of someone that looks like them in those roles Mm -hmm. they didn't think was possible, or even to be an author. I think it was pretty cool. So That's amazing. When you're growing up, it's like, oh, Frank Geary or Frank Lloyd Wright. And you're like, well, my name's not Frank. Yeah. And then I'm not going to design like big museums and all this stuff. But when you get into the profession, you realize someone's designing all of the Dunkin' Donuts and they're doing strip malls and they're doing all of the development and anything that's built needs an architect. So if you don't want to do skyscrapers, which many of us do not do skyscrapers, there's still so many other niches to get into. And then I think this podcast is a great way. I'm trying to highlight architects that have kind of swerved off that mainstream and got into other things. So I love that you're also an author now. And you're also, I'd love to plug that you are a podcast host as well. So you have a podcast called Death by Architecture. And I just want to share with everyone that your intro is, I just loved it. So I wrote it down. I'd like to read it. Escaping architecture school with your life was just the beginning. The profession is deadlier than you think. And then, you know, the music fades into the podcast. I just, I love that. To architecture school, boy, making it out is its own its own feat. But I love true crime. Like my husband thinks I'm a sociopath. But so it came out of necessity during the pandemic because I'm a business developer and I need to be connecting with my community. And we weren't going to conferences, we weren't going to meetings, nobody was in their offices. And I wasn't showing up to like some architect's house you know, like knock, knock, like come talk. Here are some cookies. Like, Come buy our software. Like I wasn't able to do that. And so I thought, how can I still connect with the community in a tangible way that they're listening? And it's not like super obnoxious and trying to go to their house, but you're still connecting. And you as a podcaster know it doesn't at first feel like it was, it is a intimate medium, but it very much so is. You know a whole lot about the podcast host, what they love, what they don't love. And to be invited into someone's car or their you know workout or they're sitting in front of their computer doing their work is a very intimate relationship. I was like, I need to capitalize on that, but also do something that I love. I love stories. I love that storytelling element to podcasting. And so I thought, okay, well, let's just do a quick Google, give it a Goog and see if there's any, um, 
<laughs> any stories on architects killing each other and it's a whole lot so our profession is deadlier than you think it's a little cliche but being able to tell the stories of like there was one a dc architect so one of the firms that i worked at as the bd person was little she was an architect at the little office on the east coast in dc we didn't work there at the same time obviously but she was killed by uh, her boyfriend that she met online and so by telling her story and keeping her story fresh I think it was good for her family and her community as they were still healing from that, that people haven't forgotten. But then to be able to help people, you know, online dating is it's that's where you're meeting people, especially during the midst of a pandemic. Like, how are you meeting people? Watch those red flags. And so I think at first I went into it more like, you know, it's just telling stories and people are going to think it's tacky. But, you know, I've been able to... (laughs) I've been able to tell stories that, you know, hopefully could save a life in that it's been really neat to to be able to to do that. And some of them are just like the Frank Lloyd Wright one. I had not heard of that until just right before, obviously, researching that story. Nobody talks about that. I've been in many architectural um, history classes and they don't talk about that. I think it was I was at Taliesin. I did their tour there. It was amazing. I definitely recommend it. But someone brought that up. Of like, oh, is this his mistress, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to comment on that. Are you serious? I'm like, even today, I don't know if you want to give just like a quick blurb about what that was about for people who don't know. So Frank Lloyd Wright, he was getting the women. He liked the ladies. And I was like, I had to Google. I think I might say say it in the podcast. Like I had to actually Google. I mean, I know what he looks like, but I had to go through like and give it some some looks because I'm like, this guy had a lot of girlfriends. And so he built Taliesin. So they're like love shack. He was still married and had his girlfriend and his girlfriend's child living in the in Taliesin. And there's still some mixed reporting, obviously, because it's a very long time ago. Um, one of their staff members was getting fired, possibly just re- retaliated against him. Frank Lloyd Wright was not there at the time. The worker that was getting fired wound up burning down and killing the people at Telius. And so the girlfriend, her child, some workers. And so it's just not something that they talk about in architecture school, but kind of funny that you bring that up is that this is my first story and I released it and I was like, oh, probably people aren't listening (laughs) to this. And on LinkedIn, someone that worked at Telius and wanted to be a contact and I was like, oh my gosh, is there a cease and desist letter coming? So I accept it. She thought it was great. I mean, I didn't really, I mean, I that one was a little bit more heavy on his background. I didn't really talk too much about the relationship or whatever, but he, I mean, everybody, even if you've never, if you never know another architect's name, most people know Franklin Wright. But yeah, so anyway, that was that, was that episode. And I did about oh, 14 or so. As you know, podcasting is so much a labor of love. It's it's a lot. Um, I did take a break to write the book. So it is on hiatus, but there are 14 episodes on Apple, you know, podcasts that people can listen to if you want to listen to more of my voice. <laughs> so tell stories about people getting murdered in AEC. Yeah, if people have made it this far, then I don't think that they take objection to your voice. So might as well keep <laughs> going and switch over to the other podcast after this. <laughs> Just keep it going. Round it up. So unfortunately, unfortunately, people have lost their lives too quickly and and are not here to tell their own story. But I think that if it it sparks the conversation to 
provide workplace safety on our construction sites or help someone see the red flags in their dating relationship, then those stories need to be told. And so I really, I really didn't, I do enjoy it. And I hope that I can clear off enough space to come back. And I have stories that I recorded. I just don't have time to edit them because, you know, I got that thing called a job. (laughs) The podcast is super fascinating, but also, like you said, the lessons that you learn from those stories is so important. Architecture is such a creative profession, but it is tied in life safety and it directly impacts the building materials we use the way that codes are done and how people get out of a building and how the structures are built are so important to keeping people safe and healthy. So we got to talk about it more. I think it would be a good time to wrap things up. I appreciate you so much coming on and sharing your stories. And if we can leave listeners with maybe a word of advice about pivoting in the profession, like you talked about several times in your career, how to follow your interests and follow your strengths and then come out the other side. I have a lot to say about that. I think, you know, one thing I did want to say is I really wish architecture schools talked more about alternative career paths because I I approach almost everything I do as a project manager, right? And there's those skills that you learn by working in this profession that don't ever leave you. There's so many things that you could do with the knowledge of being a skilled worker in this industry. You could do whatever you want. But one thing that I would say, deep down inside, we're all creatives. And so I think a lot of times we don't leave that room to be creative for ourselves. Like we're creative for our clients and we're creative for the owners, but we're hardly creative for ourselves. And so I think just follow your passion. If you you want to write that book, if you want to do that podcast, you do it. And so I think that that would be my my advice to young people is follow it, follow that passion. If it, if it's deep down in there and it feels like an itch, I'd say go ahead and do it in a full-time job, make room for the things that you love and with things you have passion for. So that makes the regular day more enjoyable when you get to do something that you love. And then I would also say from the BD side, practice your soft skills, the introduction of AI and computers and all that stuff, really work on your networking and your soft skills of relating to people. Because at the end of the day, a computer will never be able to relate to a human like we can to each other. I would challenge you to ask your leadership to let you go to a luncheon or talk to clients because computers can only do so much. And so work on that soft skill. I think it'll do you. It'll do you some good. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you sitting down and hopping on this podcast with me. Yes. Thank you so much, Tennille. I I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our time together. It's like hanging out, having a glass of wine. Just kidding. I wasn't having a glass of wine. Oh, yeah. You were drinking this whole time. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) But thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Architect Debt. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share it with your network, leave us a five-star rating and review, and follow us on social media. Reach out to the podcast directly at architectet.com. That's architectette.com. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. See you then.